The What Are We Doing podcast and the Aquatic Biosphere Project acknowledges that we are located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the histories, languages, and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all First Peoples of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hi, and welcome to today's Deep Dive episode. Today, we're talking to Dr. David Lockie from McEwen University in Edmonton, Alberta, about his research into microplastics. Now, microplastics is a really crazy topic that completely blew me away. I knew that plastic pollution was a big issue, but I really didn't understand the scale of it, or maybe even the minuscule scale of it. Microplastics can be found everywhere in our environment, and we're eating them every day. And it's something that many people are completely unaware of because they're too small to see. So get ready to learn a lot more about something that might be pretty scary. But it's something that we can work on to fix. So please take what you learn in this podcast and share it with someone so that we can start spreading the word about this issue so we can start to fix it. Now, I must apologize for the audio quality in this podcast episode. I don't know what happened with my mic, but it's a little iffy at best. So please bear through it and sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation about microplastics with two guys, both named David. Air. Vassar. Bunny. G. Moana. Omi. Tubi. Agua. Low. Enxio. Nihu. Nei. Nui. Voda. Miri. Echi. Chai. Shui. Magi. Wai. Nero. Aqua. Voda. Water. We doing. And how can we do better? Your one-stop shop for everything water-related, from discussing water, its use, and the organisms that depend on it, for all the global issues that you really never knew all had to do with water. I'm your host, David Evans, from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, and I just want to ask you something. What are we doing, and how can we do better? Hi, and welcome to another Deep Dive episode. Today, we're talking with Dr. David Lockie from McEwen University. Um, we're going to be talking about microplastics and what's happening here in Alberta and, and what you what you never thought was actually in our waterways. So, Dr. David, do you mind just giving a bit of a brief introduction to yourself and, and what kind of research you conduct? Absolutely. Yeah, so I've been at McEwen for about 10 years now. And I teach freshwater ecology, biostatistics, uh, various field courses, and some junior courses as well. And uh, my research is fairly broad. I'm a wetland ecologist, but, uh, you know, so I'm interested in wetland policy, wetland classification, and certainly been contributing to the province that way. But I also work with uh, fish tide dairy dynamics at Lac La Biche with a colleague of mine, Dr. Renal. Das at McEwen and also with Dr. Matt Ross 
in the chemistry department at McEwen on microplastics, my latest venture. So the microplastics is the one that seems to be taking up the most time at this point. Uh, you know, we've got a number of different questions that we're answering. So we're, uh, we've been feverishly sampling various types of environments uh, across the greater Edmonton region uh, from those that are flowing like the North Saskatchewan River to constructed wetlands to natural wetlands. Awesome. So interesting. And can you just start off, I guess, with what are microplastics? Yeah, they're defined typically as plastics that are less than five millimeters in size. So, but I mean, the issue is, is you can't really talk about microplastics without referring to macroplastics. And that's, of course, anything larger than that. And, you know, so we're living currently in a world that's invaded by plastic. And I don't mean, you know, the pop bottles that you see at the side of the road or the candy wrappers, etc., um, you know, this plastic is an amazing material. You know, its role is this washable, chemically stable, versatile, multi-purpose material has really made it difficult to be regulated. And of course, the, the massive use of it now has been fostered. And it's this, this translates into a, uh, a planetary pollution issue. It is, it is certainly the new contaminant, if you will. So you've got your macroplastics, anything above five millimeters. Microplastics run down to about anywhere from 100 to 1,000 nanometers, depending on uh, which group of scientists are classifying it. And, you know, the science is, is relatively new. So no one um, has really, you know, set some firm guidelines on it. But just to give you an idea, nanoplastic, uh, you know, would start at about being something maybe about 100 times smaller than an algal cell. So uh, my research with, with, with Matt Ross is inter we're interested primarily in the microplastics, so five millimeters and down from there. Um, the nanoplastics, that's a much larger question requiring much more sophisticated equipment. And to be honest, we're, uh, we're actually not there. There's, there's just so much uh, area to cover with just the microplastics uh, and, in fact, macroplastics as well, too, that uh, that's probably a lifetime of science right there. <laughs> nanoplastics that's hard to even imagine that scale and looking at, at things at that at that scale so why are microplastics a problem in our environment is this a new phenomenon or is this something what we're just discovering is is something that has always been there yeah well you know you know plastics unto themselves um have been around you know since the 1800s if you will in various forms but it's probably not until the the early 1970s that we identified microplastics as being an issue so just to give you an idea since 1975 plastic production has increased over 600 percent the quantity so it's huge and of course part of the issue is that it's very difficult as i mentioned earlier to manage this absolutely ubiquitous uh, uh you know thing i mean we use it we love it right i mean you're probably wearing plastic right now i <laughs> i know i am yeah. we're, we're talking into plastic equipment it's everywhere exactly. so the issue is a uh, management um and of course at the number of different levels but just in a nutshell there are some very serious and potential deleterious effects on biota and ecosystem function. And because we're part of the ecosystem, that affects humans too. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's, it's so ubiquitous within our own environments that it's, it's, you can't get away from it at this point. Um, it's, it's, at least it's very difficult. There are definitely groups that are trying to. And I guess that kind of leads into where do microplastics come from? So is this just 
pieces of plastic that are breaking off from all of these other plastics? Are they, is it just a natural progression of how plastics break down and, and how do they get into our natural environments? Yeah, I know. Absolutely. You, you, you nailed it right there. That's really what it is. It's just little pieces of plastic for the most part. So, you know, you, you can classify them broadly into two categories, one that are manufactured to be microplastics, and those are the beads or microbeads that we often found in various cosmetics. So they're currently banned in, in Canada, but, uh, you know, we have found them certainly in the North Saskatchewan River and various other sites that we've sampled in the Edmonton region. Uh, and that's probably, wow. you know, it, it is, it is, it's, it's a bit of a, an echo of, of the past. So there's pro- probably products still on the shelf in people's bathrooms that they're using. And so they're getting into the system in various, in various ways. And the other one, of course, is what you had first mentioned. And that is just basically breakdown of anything from a plastic water bottle to cellophane. And um, what I think is one of the more ubiquitous issues is microplastic fibers. So in our research here in Edmonton, and I can, I can talk about that a little bit later, that is probably the most common contaminant that we found is, is the fibers. And in fact, when I'm just even taking miscellaneous samples with my freshwater ecology students out of various habitats, uh, in a willy-nilly fashion, uh, just for education purposes, we're finding microplastics. So it, it really is uh, an issue. So these microplastics now, there's probably no place on Earth that they are not found. So if you want to look at the macroplastic issue, if you see a macroplastic, you know that there's a microplastic there and very likely uh, the nanoplastic level. So they're found at both poles right now. They're found in the highest mountain regions. A recent study in the Western U.S. National Parks suggests that up to 1,000 tons of plastic are raining down every year. So this, of course, is coming from a number of of different ways. It's, um, It's everywhere. So they're found uh, recently, uh, various candy wrappers, I don't know the brand, uh, have been found in the Marianas Trench, uh, which is true, yeah. Wow. Yes, in the Marianas Trench, a plastic bag and candy wrappers, which is just phenomenal. So um, if they're to that degree, um, you know, they're, they're everywhere. And there's perhaps, a, there's a study that just came out, I believe, in uh, Pennsylvania, in the Pittsburgh region, I think they sampled over 50 different sites and there were microplastics everywhere and and to be truthful and pretty well every different ecosystem type aquatic ecosystem type that we had sampled here in the greater Edmonton region we have found evidence of microplastics so it's in the air uh, you know it's in the soil and it is in the water and there are a number of means of transport uh, that mean that this is now a ubiquitous global contaminant uh, a recent study also pointed to the fact that the uh, concentrations of microplastics are higher in the Arctic than many other places closer to urban areas. And that's very likely due to the um, a twofold, the, the, the gyres of plastic that are floating in not only the Pacific Ocean, but the Atlantic Ocean that are breaking down and ending up uh, through currents uh, concentrating in the Arctic. So uh, anywhere you look, uh, you will find it. Well, I'm sorry, but that is absolutely terrifying uh, <laughs> that they're that ubiquitous. Uh, I'm very curious to know, like that candy wrapper that was found in, in the Marianas Trench to find out what kind of candy giant squid are eating these days. <laughs> it, it's interesting because when I think of microplastics and plastics issues, 
my mind often goes to the North Pacific gyre and gyres of, of plastics out in the ocean. And my mind immediately goes to this image of a plastic water bottle being washed up on shore on a beach somewhere. And I don't often think about it in the Arctic or, or inland in central Canada and Alberta. So maybe can you talk a bit about the research that you're doing here in Alberta and, and how, how you collect that information and, and what can learn from it? Absolutely. So Matt, Matt, Roth and I, Matt Ross and I got together probably four or five years ago on a joint research grant to look at microplastics. So this was originally uh, Matt's idea. It came out of his lab. And uh, I, I basically put the ecological spin on it as he's uh, basically a lab chemist. So we developed a program to sample the North Saskatchewan River. Uh, and then after that, various types of environments across the landscape in Alberta. So just to give you an example, six landscape types were sampled. So that would be parks, industrial areas, um, where else? Urban sort of res residential areas, areas along the highway, uh, et cetera. And, and also um, some uh, constructed wetlands in parks within the city. So we ended up with six of these different what we call landscape types and then sampled about 10 sites in each of those landscape settings. And um, that's the that's the most recent stuff that we've uh, done with respect to uh, the microplastics, because um the uh, it's the invertebrates that uh, we're really focusing on right now um, that uh, so those sites, those 60 or so sites that we had had sampled, um, we were able to uh, in, uh, we get our students involved and they sampled invertebrates for us. So we've um, we've also now at the point where we have one group of benthic invertebrates called scuds or amphipods. There's a couple species here in Alberta that basically live in the mud in the bottom of these ponds. And they're everywhere as well, too. And no surprise, we have found some plastic inside their guts. There's plastic in the sediment, and there's certainly plastic in the water. The most recent research, though, that, that we have published, it just literally came out in January in the journal Facets, was on our North Saskatchewan research. And so we had uh, one of our, our great students, uh, Taylor, uh, basically take the lead on this. She worked with, I, I had her for about five courses, and she's a very inquisitive scientist. So we got her on this project, and she did a lot of the sampling and writing and lab analysis. She's the lead on that paper, and we like to see our students getting published. So on that one there, we, uh, we, yeah. we sampled the North Saskatchewan River more or less from Devon all the way down to Fort Saskatchewan, so various different locations. Um, using, you know, uh, basically we use plankton nets in order to sample them and use a flow meter. And then you can calculate uh, the rate per cubic meter of microplastics. So the good news is that uh, it's relatively low concentration, but the bad news is they're in every sample. So um, every sample hmm. uh, included anywhere from, I think it was 4.6 to about 88.3 particles per cubic meter. And the average was about 26. And a focus of that particular research was to try to understand the sewage treatment plants. So, for instance, Gold Bar and the, uh, the station that's downstream from that were actually concentrating uh, in their outflows any microplastics. Because, as we know, uh, microplastics are being ingested by humans and also just go down in through the sewers. And uh, we were, you know, thankfully, we didn't we didn't actually notice any difference above or below the actual outflows of these sewage treatment plants. So those plastics very likely are being retained in the um, 
the biosolids that are used as a uh, organic matter sort of fertilizer. So I, I can't really say that for sure, but I do know that from other research that the biosolids, basically human waste uses compost on farmers' fields, uh, that is actually spread, uh, are probably uh, going to be a source of microplastics because there's certainly not a huge amount coming through the outflow. Uh, interestingly, too, we found four different types of plastic, the microbeads, uh, fragments, film, and the fibers. And of those the fiber were definitely the most dominant. So Matt's got some sophisticated equipment, uh, Roman uh, microscopy, microscopy that uh, he used uh, with the student with Taylor, and we were able to determine that it was polyethylene or polypropylene were the common uh, plastic fragments that were found. So they are here, uh, David, and uh, they're they're everywhere, and we're hoping to get a you know, a little bit more information. The uh, the landscape scale uh, research, I think, will be really telling because, um, you know, you should be able to find different plastics in different settings. So believe it or not, tire wear is considered microplastic. And we hmm. suspect just, you know, from our preliminary research in those particular wetlands and stormwater ponds that are adjacent to the Anthony Hende through Edmonton um, are likely... Um, dominated by tire wear. So that research um, is pretty well uh, groundbreaking from the perspective. I, as far as I know, we're the first one to publish a paper in Alberta. I do know that there's a, a research group now that's working uh, uh, through Nate uh, with a industrial partner and they have a fairly large budget and they will be doing some work in the North Saskatchewan and others. And uh, Matt and I have a couple of other uh, research grant proposals out right now as well too that we're uh, we're hoping to find out uh, from in, in May uh, you know to further our work. So it's new, uh, it's very exciting, and from our yeah from our perspective, uh, we love the fact that we can get so many students involved. We've had probably fifteen students involved in our research. I love that idea. Yeah, you're involving students and really getting them in at the ground floor of the new study of uh, microplastics that are ubiquitous. It's great to hear that there is work being done on the ground here and and it's not just being focused on the ocean as I would have done. <laughs> yeah, well, they, the, the ocean is the low-hanging fruit. Um, you know, certainly there's more ocean than fresh water, but arguably the fresh water may be, uh, you know, somewhat more important from the perspective of humans, right? Because we're uh, you know, we live near near freshwater. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if you heard of the stat, though, David, but uh, some recent research came out in Europe and Australia and verified at Simon Fraser University for Canada that um, humans are consuming about uh, the quantity that weigh about the, about five grams or the weight of a credit card per week in plastic. So depending on what your diet is, so we're eating about a credit card credit a week. Credit card a week. It's absolutely astonishing. That's 52 credit cards per wow. year. So, yeah, and of course, these are quite small. And, you know, for instance, um, they found, so for instance, in the average bottle of beer, there may be three or four particles. Every time you crack the top of a water bottle, there are shards that will go in there that are considered microplastics. And in particular, shellfish have a, a high concentration because they're filter feeders. Though so this seems to be a, a place where, so here again, it really depends on what your diet is and where you're getting your water from. Um, uh, but anyway, it's, and of course, uh, recent research too has confirmed that it's in our feces. 
So that is actually means of uh, investigating microplastics is actually looking at sewage outflows and things like that in order to similar to what they're doing with um, uh, COVID as well. You know, you can you can use sewage for all kinds of interesting scientific uh, things. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good way of, of of testing a population without having to test people individually. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah, indeed. I, I'm sorry. I'm still hung up on the credit card thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you can, you can, you can easily Google that and find the source. But uh, it is astonishing. I have a hard time believing that too. Um, you know, and if if this is the stuff that's relatively easily measurable, um, the nanoplastics is the next topic. How much of that is is within? At this point, has there been much research to identify if there's any human health risks associated with this? Uh, the, the primary research has concentrated on organisms, you know, uh, smaller organisms mm-hmm. than humans. And here again, so everything from, um, you know, plankton and higher invertebrates, you know, the, the, the what we would call bugs, in aqua- in, often in aquatic environments, that's where the uh, much of the research has been done. And, and certainly those are issues. So the, uh, the toxicity or let's just say the deleterious effects of microplastics on these smaller organisms is twofold. So the first is, is that they double as a food source with very little nutrition. And you could also extrapolate that up to, uh, for instance, whales, uh, for instance, sperm whales and various others, filter feeders eating a lot of plastic, um, the macroplastics. Uh, Je- Dr. Jennifer Lavers, who is a McEwen grad, is doing groundbreaking breaking work in the South Pacific, and she has shown shorebird communities almost on the verge of collapse because the young are being fed plastics by the parents. And of course, the parents are eating plastics too. So that's the macro level. So poor nutrition, that's not necessarily an issue for most humans. (laughs) Uh, It's the (laughs) microplastics, which are the issue. So, but anyways, uh, the second aspect, um, the deleterious aspect of the microplastic and probably all plastics to some degree is the fact that they, uh, Toxins can not only inherent in the plastic composition itself or within the environment, various metals and such can actually stick, basically adsorb to the outside of the plastic and the organism will eat these. And then, of course, it will biomagnify up the food chain. So perhaps, uh, you know, algae will filter feed some of this stuff and then invertebrates will eat those larger invertebrates. And then, of course, perhaps fish and then um, piscivorous Birds perhaps will eat those and then so on. And so you get biomagnification, bioaccumulation, and then biomagnification of toxins that you would not normally have, have found a conduit through the food chain. So that is of a, a particular concern. We still don't know very much about it, but uh, this is the reason why we're looking at the invertebrates right now, just to get a handle. So the invertebrates we've collected for, are from about three different trophic levels and about 10 different type of taxa. And we hope to be able to follow it up through, you know, because some invertebrates feed on others to see if it's it's, it's concentrating, at least at this fine scale uh, in the Edmonton region. So that's the issue. The, the, the nanoplastics, those, uh, those basically cross cellular membranes and they affect cell function. So plastics can reside theoretically in every human tissue. And I think recent research has shown, uh, in, including in newborn babies. That's wow. 
biomagnification and bioaccumulation, just looking at the toxicology of different toxins in the environment. And this takes us all the way back to Silent Spring and Rachel Carson and, and those types of environmental contaminants. And now thinking of it, an environmental contaminant, not so much as toxic chemical, but more as a particle that can absorb those toxic chemicals and act as a courier of them throughout that ecosystem chain is yeah that's scary yeah it is it is it, it absolutely is something of concern and i there's lots of research going on right now so this is this is a positive thing um but you know there's um it's it's very difficult to get away from because the because of the ubiquitousness something else i should point out too is there's been plenty of research particularly coming out of a Northwestern Europe and Scandinavia that are demonstrating um, the deleterious, uh, well, the, the the significant amounts of microplastics in the air in uh, within buildings. So, uh, for instance, a, a big source of them are carpeting. So, carpeting is mm. is a huge uh, issue. I mean, because those fragments are breaking off, and there's lots of abrasion occurring all the time. And so, these fragments are uh, around, and there's and there's you know some fairly large numbers depending on the type of environment that you're in, where you're actually breathing it in. So, you're eating it, you're drinking it, and you're breathing it in. And I I don't want to scare people per se. I mean, you know, the, the human body and, you know, various other uh, organism bodies are, are fairly robust and we can, you know, we're taking in toxins all the time and we can handle them. But uh, at what point, you know, is it, is it, is it very deleterious? Because it's it, here again is sort of that new pollutant, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and, and because it's so small and very difficult to, to assess that, you know, it is an issue, something to think about. Definitely. And something to, to really think about, too, as within our own purchasing. As, as we were saying before, plastic is everywhere. Plastic is in almost everything that we buy. I'm, I'm a little curious about, you were saying the fibers are one of the biggest villains of the day. Are fibers mostly coming from carpeting or fabrics? Do we know where the largest sources are? Well, you can you can probably you know just work it out backwards on the type of plastic uh, that you that you find, but you know to be honest, a lot of it is from the clothing. So you know that it's just such an amazing. If you think about it, it's an it's amazing material that can be used and uh, in, in, in modified in a number of different ways, and and it's in most of our clothing in in some form, right? Even if it's just the thread or something like that. And right. of course, a very high proportion of all our clothing is is a hundred percent synthetic which of course is, is plastic. So, um, you know, when you're washing, a big source of them is actually washing machines. So washing, machine, washing machines can, can concentrate the amount of uh, plastic in the environment because it's basically going out the drain. And recent research has even shown that the um, uh, gentle wash, which uses more water than just a regular wash, can actually highly inflate the number of microplastics that are going out your drain. So you can uh, now purchase filters for your washing machine to capture all the microplastics or a good proportion of them. But I, I think they're, they're pretty expensive. There's something like uh, you know $250. So oh, not wow. a lot of households will actually want to do that until maybe the, the price comes down or to be honest, until manufacturers start integrating these things in. So look at it this way. I think a, a recent stat I came across is that clothing industry produces something like 42 million tons of synthetic fibers per year. And that's metric tons. So 80% wow. of those, 80% of those are for polyester garments. 
So, you know, our, our, our lovely fleeces that we love to wear, you know, our yeah. Sherpas. Uh, I love it too, but really, I mean, it's just wash, a, a wash in this stuff. And, you know, so washing synthetic items in your washing machine can yield up to something like 6 million microfibers per wash. So that's huge. That's huge. And another, almost another million can be added if you're using, um, you know, the gentle cycle, which uses more water, which is, an I found it very interesting. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So there you go. There's, it is. So unless you can capture it from your uh, washing machine, there's, I mean, we're really contributing uh, to this in a big way. And here again, most, most people do not know this, this, this issue. Yeah, it seems like it should be a fairly simple issue, but then we're not even talking about nanoplastics at this point. We're we're only at the micro, so this could be a much larger issue on that scale. And I hate to ask this question, but is this something that we can clean up? And how long do the does it take for these these particles to really break down? Is this hundreds of years, thousands of years? Next week? I think that the, um, well, here again, we know they're ubiquitous and because there's so many different conditions, you know, whether it's cold, whether it's hot, whether there's water uh, or some other solvent type of solvent or whether there is some kind of abrasion abrasion happening, um, that will depend, that will sort of be, um, those will be factors in how long the microplastics will last in the environment. So I would have to say that, um, you know, for several generations or perhaps hundreds of generations, plastics will be here. Uh, even if you stopped producing plastic right now, the amount that is out there is so significant that, um, you know, I hate to be too pessimistic, but it is something that we will have to deal with for the very foreseeable future. I uh, I don't know if it will ever go away. I mean, it's it's very difficult to sort of think about. I think it's almost a geological scale question. So geological Ooh. scale is, for instance, like in the scale of looking at glaciation and things like that. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but here again, <laughs> it's it's a little bit out of my wheelhouse. I, I I really can't. I don't have any numbers to support that, but I just know that you know they're so ubiquitous and they can be stored for a long time in sediments and then be reintroduced through other different through other activities. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Um, what can we do about this? This is uh, that's a really good question. I, I think that, for instance, as you mentioned, we can make some smart consumer choices, if you will, and it's a more um, natural product, so cottons and wools and things like that. But even those have environmental costs and issues. And and in fact, a lot of the fibers we found in the North Saskatchewan River were cotton, <laughs> so uh, they don't they don't. Uh, I'm not sure how they compare to plastic with respect to some of the uh, the things I had mentioned, but they're they're still a a, a fiber of some sort. So, uh, you know, remember those candy wrappers in the Marianas Trench? Well, let's make sure that we put ours in the garbage is one thing, because I do know that, for instance, in in, uh, some of the park ponds that we sampled, there were quite a few of the fragments which or films which are coming from candy wrappers, those kinds of things. So, you know, um, try to manage it as much as as possible. Um, With respect to your washing machine, perhaps that's something to consider. Uh, and of course, single-use plastics and the lack of recycling opportunities for other plastics is a problem. So just look around your office, office there, David. Um, every all the plastic things. What will what where will they be a hundred years from now? Right, because those products right. probably won't last that long. Uh, the, the ultimate solution really remains with manufacturers and government 
I think in order to get a handle on this, there, there has to be uh, some kind of responsibility. But here again, because it's such a ubiquitous and useful material that be, can, can be made into literally anything, um, it is just, it's, it's rampant. It's, it's everywhere. So it's, a, <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a blessing and it's a curse, if you will. Yeah. It's a classic case of tragedy of the commons where everyone is, is so excited to, to take part in it, but we all suffer because of it until we start to internalize those, those costs. Yeah. I mean, for instance, yeah. So for instance, you know, the city of Edmonton is changing its recycling program now, which is good. And mm-hmm. it, it's basically creating more control on their end, which means more work for us. With, and that's fine. It, it, it increases our responsibility as it should be would like to see the responsibility translated higher up as well too. So at the manufacturer's level, so even just the simple things like the bubble pack for screws and that, um, you know, which yeah. is pretty, or, or batteries, of course, being the classic example of, uh, you know, these single use plastics that will be here forever. And here again, you know, we're, we are finding out now that, you know, recent research has also pointed out that some of these plastics can actually, uh, the macroplastics can degrade into smaller fractions far more quickly than we had thought due to the combination of things like heat, cold, uh, water, and of course, abrasion. So we're, we're learning a little bit more about that is that there, it may be a little bit faster than we had thought. Uh, don't have any numbers here, but that's, uh, that is an issue. You know, you, you may have heard that there is a, uh, I believe a high school student who recently came up with this very unique uh, method of using oil and ferrule fluids that would basically attract microplastics based on this valence. So they kind of like a magnet. But here again, at the at the wide scale, that's difficult. Um, other research now is using these things called nanocoils, which are tiny reactors, and they can actually break down, they can trigger microplastic breakdown at an accelerated rate, at least at the laboratory level. So that might be something... Um, uh, and then it may be easier. So I'm not sure what you would do after that. Uh, apparently, coastal areas may be easier to address than some of the gyres where they where they've done some research. But so people are thinking about it. Uh, you know, there's also some um, municipalities are putting in these nets on sewage out, not sewage outflows, but basically stormwater outflows in cities in order to collect the larger particles, wrappers, cups, yeah. bottles. And then they can manage it that way. So slowly but surely, you know, there 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 is promise of of, of this being addressed. Um, but to what degree, you know, it, it will take some time and organization and you know uh, and and will from the government, I think, to uh, to help us with this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For those who listen to this episode and get so jazzed up about uh, about microplastics and preventing them getting out into the environment. Other than just making own choices towards what you're purchasing and things around your washing machine and potentially dishwasher and things like that, what would you recommend to help incentivize large corporations and governments to be able to to make a change for this? Yeah, I, I think people power is the answer there. So in order to, you know, get some traction on this one, more people need to be aware of the issue. And, you know, so talk to your friends talk to your parents and, and other relatives and, 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 you know, let, let them know about this issue. And I think that's where, uh, you know, eventually it could lead to voting for that particular candidate that will, you know, support some policy. I mean, we already have uh, the reduction or, or basically the banning of the microbeads, 
So this is this is positive. So the Canadian government, you know, has has at least acknowledged this uh, to the degree. But that's that's pretty low hanging fruit, I think. Um, the the other question is much larger. So let's just start with education. Let's integrate the research um, that we're all doing to try to inform us as well too, and 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 then hopefully at some point it will gain traction at a higher level. Perfect. Well, I would just like to thank you so much. David, for coming onto the show and for taking part, it's it's I've learned so much. <laughs> I'm I'm really blown away at the scale of this this issue and 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 how, quite frankly, I've been a little ignorant to it. So I thank you for informing me about this issue, and uh, and I think a lot of listeners will have their eyes opened quite a bit by this. I'm a little curious about your own background and how you got to where you are now. So if would you mind just touching on that quickly? Yeah, I, I took the long way to get to where I am. <laughs> I, I started out in auto mechanic school at a high school and, uh, you know, I, I still love cars and that and tinker with them and that. But uh, I quickly switched to fish and wildlife technician diploma program. And, and that sort of got me my start in ecology. I, I worked for the Ministry of Natural Resources and Fisheries Research as a technician for a year. And then, you know, back in the 80s, we had a little bit of a, uh, not a depression, but certainly a blip with the uh, the economy. So I ended up working uh, in a factory for 10 years. And, uh, <laughs> you know, nothing focuses, yeah, nothing focuses oh, wow. you on what you want to do uh, when you're doing what you don't want to do. <laughs> so... Anyway, yeah, I, I managed, I was able to apply to university as a mature student. Uh, I wanted to be a high school teacher and I volunteered and that didn't suit me, but I was really enamored with a, a prof at the University of Waterloo and his work on wetlands. And so I eventually did my master's on birds and wetlands at the University of Waterloo after I did uh, my undergrad in, uh, in physical geography. And then I moved out here to do my PhD with Dr. Suzanne Bailey at the University of Alberta. Uh, some may know that um, she is the wife of the uh, the recently departed uh, Dr. David Schindler, who was, you know, a real role. Both Suzanne and, mm -hmm. and Dave were um, real role models to all of us in the lab. So uh, and really influenced me, I would say. So if you got Suzanne, you got Dave. And if you got Dave, you got Suzanne. And they were a powerhouse together. So that basically springboarded me uh, into my career. I was in environmental consulting for several years, working in the oil sands and various pipelines uh, as well, too. And then I joined. Um, mm -hmm. and I just thought, well, that was OK. But um, I wanted to be a little bit more research focused. So then I joined Athabasca University as a director of research of one of their programs and was in that position for a couple of years and then wanted to do a little more teaching. And so the McEwen opportunity came up, uh, you know, 10 or so years ago, and I haven't looked back. I very much enjoy my, uh, uh, my position at, you know, at McEwen University. So that's sort of the, uh, I, I, you know, it took me 21 years to pay off my uh, undergrad loan. I just paid it off a couple of years ago. And I tell that to students <laughs> who complain, but I, I look at it as a privilege. And I, I'm, I'm eternally grateful that I was able to, you know, start my undergrad at age 30 and, uh, and, and move on with things because it's been a, a really rewarding uh, a career. That's a fantastic story. And so it, it's a, 
it's a true inspiration to everyone who's struggling with student debt right now. It's possible to get through, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, 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 that's a fantastic story. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I, I really enjoyed our conversation. I've learned a lot and yeah, I'm so excited to see what your, you and your, uh, your team do next. Where can, where can listeners find out more about the work that you're doing? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, both Dr. Ross, Matt Ross and I have web pages and such at the, at the university, but you know, when they, um, you know, I guess with our published papers and things like that, they, they get a little bit of press. That's probably the, the best thing to do or, Hey, you know, give us an email if you're interested in our research. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for speaking with me. And I'll, I'll leave a link to your web pages uh, in the show notes so people can find them. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. And, and let's stop microplastics. You bet. Thanks again too, Dave. Take care. Thank you for tuning into today's deep dive episode with David Lockie, all about microplastics. And once again, I'm so sorry about the audio quality. I have no idea what happened. Apparently, my microphone just decided it wasn't going to work today and would just be sitting there useless. If you want to learn more about microplastics and the research that David Lockie's doing, I'll leave links to his website in the show notes. And I'll also leave links to many other websites that are looking into microplastics in our world and ways that you can get involved. I'm the host and producer, David Evans, and I would just like to thank the rest of the team from the Aquatic Biosphere Project, specifically to Paula Polman, Sophie Cervera, Anna Bettini. Thanks for all of your help. To learn more about the Aquatic Biosphere Project and what we're doing here in Alberta, telling the story of water, check us out at aquaticbiosphere.ca. And if you have any questions or comments about the show, we'd love to hear them. Email us at conservation at aquaticbiosphere.org. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave us a review. It really helps us out. We'll be switching our podcast release schedule to every second week now. But don't worry, next episode is going to be fantastic. If you follow us on social media, you'll have seen posts about locusts and deserts a while ago. And that's our next focus. We're taking on desert locusts, how plagues of these creatures can completely devastate entire continents of crops. And how does this have anything to do with water? Well, let's just say you need some strange weather, some strange rain, to bring a lot of pain to a lot of people. We'll be examining the link between water and plagues of desert locusts of biblical proportions. Tune in, you won't want to miss it. Thanks, and it's been a splash.